Welcome, everyone, to the Tuesday edition of the Markets and Mortgages podcast. I am your host, Tyler Crawley, as usual. And just a reminder, our podcast now on every major platform, so you can find us there and leave us a good review. And that's all we ask. That's all we ask for the free podcast. It's all you got to do. I would say that's that's pretty good deal. So we got a lot to get to. Well, <laughs> I got to tell you, today is going to be a busy day. So Wednesday's show, I don't know, that could be our first over 20-minute show. And the reason I bring that up is because today there is a lot of data coming out. Starting off at 8.30 a.m., we have new residential sh- uh, sales from the Census Bureau. Like I said, that drops at 8.30 a.m. Then at 9 a.m., we have the latest data from the Case-Shiller Index. And then at 10 a.m., Consumer Confidence. So there's a lot. There's a lot going on today. But before those come out, let's talk about what we saw yesterday. And we had some good news. Loans in forbearance fall or fell for the 12th week in a row. That is a long record, I will say. Total loans in forbearance decreased by three basis points from the previous week to 4.19%. The Mortgage Bankers Association, who of course does this weekly survey, now argues that 2.1 million homeowners are in forbearance plans. Now, with regards to those plans, there have been some changes. What I mean by that is which stage are they in 11.8% of total loans and forbearance are in the initial stage. 82.9% are in the extension phase. And unfortunately, 5.3% are in the stage. I should say our forbearance reentries. And it was in fact, the reentries that caught the attention of Mike. Let's see if I can pronounce this correctly. Mike Franton, Fran, Fran, Fran Tantoni. There's no way that's right. <laughs> Frat and Tony. Frat and Tony. Yeah, we're we're going to go with that one. He's the senior vice president and chief economist over at the Mortgage Bankers Association, who said in a statement, quote, although the overall share is declining, there was another increase in forbearance reentries. Currently, 5.3% of loans in forbearance are homeowners who had canceled forbearance plans but needed assistance again. Now, it's hard to read into exactly why that's happening because there's a lot going on with our economy right now. I mean, these people who left were employed, then lost their job again, were these people who were, I guess, coming up on the deadline, and so they had to get out of the program, but realizing that the program was, in fact, going to probably or was renewed for at least or extended Then they decided to come back to it. Not entirely sure. They don't get into that. But there's no doubt that people re-entering forbearance is something that some people are concerned about. Now, Megan Leonhart over at CNBC reported, uh, I I should say earlier in the day before these numbers came out, about those, uh, the particular homeowners who are in the forbearance programs, especially at this point. So the people who have left were the ones who needed it temporarily and are now in a place where they no longer need the forbearance program. Obviously, the people that are still in the program, they need it. And so what is the likely makeup of those homeowners? And as I mentioned, Leon Hart over at CNBC said that those who remain in these plans 
typically have lower credit scores and live in lower income neighborhoods, which make them more susceptible to losing their homes when these programs end later this year. Now, we don't exactly know when that's going to happen because we have heard that the Biden administration wants to extend the program. But at the same time, there's also some pushback that the CDC doesn't even have the the constitutional right to be in charge of this program to begin with. So there's a lot of debates about what is going to happen with this program. But here's the thing. I think this is very important to remember when talking about forbearance, which of course, when you're talking about forbearance, what you're really talking about is the possibility of foreclosure. And so you're seeing 2.1 million. So what does that mean? Could there be 2.1 million foreclosures? And let's look at that number. So 2.1 million. Now I should say that Adam Data Solutions earlier this month said that when you look, they had an equity report come out and they found that just 2.6 million homeowners in the first quarter of 2021 were considered seriously underwater. 2.6. Now that's not a number to sneeze at. That's, that's a significant number. But let's compare to where we were in November of 2009. CoreLogic reported then that almost 10.7 million or 23% of all residential properties were underwater. Now we're looking at one in 21. So we're talking about, what is that? A little less than 5% compared to 23%. So clearly this is a completely different situation. So when we're talking about 2.1 million people possibly going into foreclosure, that's not the same thing as the 10.7 million people who were underwater. Now, once again, just being underwater does not mean that you're going to lose your house, but it does mean that you're in a situation where if you're realizing, oh, I might not be able to pay this mortgage, walking away is a possibility in your mind because you have no equity in the house. You're just walking away from a bad investment. It's going to hit you financially, obviously, but people who are underwater are more likely to walk away from their homes. But here's the real reason why this is not 2008, I mean, besides the obvious numbers. But we talked about this before, or at least it's been in the newsletter. I don't think this when this report came out, we were doing the podcast. Like I guess it was last month, the Wall Street Journal reported that according to the data, the current home market is 4 million homes short of buyer demand. 4 million homes. And we've talked about how long that could take to replenish. I think the number is anywhere from six to 10 years. Now, imagine if 2.1 or 2.6 million homes all of a sudden became available. Now, if you're looking at that data, that's still 2 million homes short of where we need to be with regards to buyer demand. Now, rates are possibly going up. We know that. That's looking very possible in our future as this economy recovers. The Fed's going to need to do something to cool it down. And many people believe that rates are going to rise. Now, as we say all the time, historically, rates are still insanely low. But yeah, I mean, if rates go to three and a half percent, which was amazing just a couple of years ago, that does look high when it was a year ago, 2.5 percent. So let's say rates go up, maybe buyer demand 
gets tamped down a little bit, but we're still not close to that 4 million number. So even if we do see a situation where all of these people in forbearance have to sell their homes. And I also want to point out that we don't necessarily know that those 2.1 million are all under that umbrella of those who are underwater in their homes. There could be people who have equity but are just unable to make their payment and they may just put their house on the market and sell it normally and either, you know, maybe make a little bit of money with the equity they have in it or just break even, whatever it may be. So it doesn't necessarily mean that all 2.1 million people are necessarily underwater. I'm just pointing out that the data we've seen 2.6 million are across the country and we have 2.1 million people in this uh, or, or are, pot, are still in forbearance plans. So this would not be anywhere near the crisis that we saw in 2008. And that is something that needs to be stressed because you know a lot of people go, here it is. You know, this is what's going to cause the crash. This is what's going to call the bubble to burst. Now, speaking of the bubble, there were a few people out there, as we all know, who correctly predicted the 2008 housing market crisis. The people who were kind of standing alone, you've seen the big short, you know who a lot of them are. But one of them was Robert Schiller. He's a economist at Yale. He's won the Nobel Prize. And he is part of the Case Schiller Index. The guy knows a little something about houses. And he was actually on CNBC on Friday. I missed this interview. We would have talked about it on Monday, but I just for some reason didn't see it on Friday. But I did see it yesterday. And there's a clip in particular that I wanted to play where he was asked about what could happen with housing. And I thought it was important because I like to point out what everyone is saying. That's what I want to do with this podcast. That's what I want to do with the newsletter. I want to have all the information out there. I don't want to just do what, what do they call, you know, sell your book just because I'm in the mortgage industry. I don't want to just be like, buy a house, buy a house, buy a house. I want to let you know what people are saying. So you can make your own conclusion you can look at this and say okay this is you know I, I think this guy's right or I think that guy's right I just want to let you know what they're saying so Robert Schiller was on CNBC and he wasn't predicting a housing crash I want to make that very clear but he did believe that housing prices were high and did project that we could see housing prices fall once again not a crash and he didn't get very specific but uh, here's what he had to say I don't know if this market is going to react immediately. You know, uh, 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 it's not like the uh, sudden breaks that occur in the stock market. So we have a lot of upward momentum now. So uh, waiting a year probably won't bring houses prices down. Uh, but if you go out three or five years, I could imagine that they're substantially lower than they are now. And maybe that's a good thing, right? <laughs> not from the standpoint of a homeowner, but it's from the standpoint of a prospective homeowner, homeowner, it's a good thing. If we have more houses, it, it, we're better off. Now, I'll tell you what I liked about that clip is that one, he gave himself some wiggle room. You know, He wasn't like, hey, this is going to happen next year. He's like, this could happen three, five years, something along those lines. But he also doesn't get very specific. He just says that prices could be substantially lower. What does substantial mean? I mean, some people that could be 10%, some people that could be 60%. Substantial is a a very, it's a a variable term. It all depends, very relative on on who is using it. But what was also, I think, very interesting, and I almost kind of wish he'd been asked for a follow-up, is when he was asked about 
um, housing. At the end, he said more homes are better. So prices would be lower. And I'm assuming he's making that argument because they're going to be built. They're going to build more homes, which is we all know this is what everyone said. How do we get housing more affordable? You build more. That's how you do it. All these policy proposals and ideas and rent controls. No, no, you build more. That's how you do it. And Schiller seems to be arguing that we're not going to see home prices drop because of some you know, bad lending or because of some crash. He seems to be arguing that home prices are going to drop because they're going to be more building, which would follow the basic laws of supply and demand. And so I thought it was an interesting interview, an interesting clip. I wanted to play it for you because like I said, Robert Schiller knows what he's talking about. And you know, he's like I said, he's giving himself some wiggle room here, but I did think it was an interesting clip and you know, we'll see what happens. I mean, right now no one's building anything. And I got to tell you before we're out of time, we have to talk about this because I saw this over at the Cato Institute blog. So one of their, economist who writes for them, uh, Scott Lincecum, who I've actually had on my radio show and I follow him on Twitter. Great follow on Twitter. If you don't follow him, go find him. I don't even know what his Twitter handle is, but go find him. He actually reported on a recent development with lumber tariffs. For those who don't know, uh, we actually charge a tariff on lumber coming in from Canada. And this is not the root cause of these lumber prices, but it would, would no doubt undoubtedly help the situation. I mean, putting a tax on lumber, no matter how much product we're getting from a particular place, is not going to help things. It's going to inflate prices. There's, there's no doubt about that. So he was talking about the Commerce Department recently made an announcement about lumber tariffs. And I would have thought, because I'm a rational person and I'm assuming everyone listening to this podcast is as well, that you would think, oh, well, lumber prices, I mean, we're, we're looking at all-time highs. And I know last week we saw, what, seven days of the lumber future markets, the price drop, and people were thinking, okay, maybe the surge is over and the prices kind of bounced up here and there, but we're pretty much at all-time highs. We're talking two, 300% more than where we were a year ago. So you would think that our commerce department would be trying to lower the price of such an important commodity because what's happening when home prices go up, you price working class people out of the housing market. And that's who we're told policymakers are always trying to help. So you think, uh Oh, we better do something about this. Let's get rid of tariffs on Canadian lumber. Well, what was their decision? Lincecombe reports, in particular, various outlets reported that Commerce has published preliminary findings in the second ADCVD administrative review. Now, that's, I believe, anti-dumping um, something something duties. <laughs> I don't remember what the CV is. Collective something, whatever. But basically, they're the people who look and determine what is happening with imports and should we keep tariffs where they are? Should we raise them? Whatever it may be. So what do they decide? They decided to double the combined duty rate on Canadian lumber imported into the United States. Yeah, they uh, <laughs> actually doubled 
the tariff. <laughs> oh man, you gotta love it. You gotta love government. So it's like, oh my gosh, wood is getting very expensive. It's pricing people out of the housing market. What can we do to help with housing affordability? And someone's like, um, we could get rid of the tariff on lumber imports. Ah, good idea. Let's double the tariff. Wait, no, I said. No, I said that we should get rid of the tariff. Ah, yes. Now, nah, good. Double it. We're going to double it. Very good. All right, let's get on that. Uh, what, what are they thinking? I, <laughs> how, how good are the lumber lobbyists? That's a cool name, though. Lumber lobbyists. I like the alliteration there. Lumber lobbyists. They must be really good. I mean, that's I want to meet those people. I mean, they probably could sell ice to an Eskimo. I mean, they convince the Commerce Department to double tariffs in a moment when we're looking at record high lumber prices. Man, they must be born salesmen. <laughs> you think they'd be working for a better lobbying group? Uh, well, I don't know. I guess lumber's doing pretty well right now, so uh, they're they're making their own market, I guess. So yeah, we've we've actually uh, doubled tariffs on lumber coming in good job good job all right like i said it's going to be a busy day here we'll be talking about it all tomorrow here on the program once again new residential sales out at 8 30 case schiller out at 9 and consumer confidence out at 10 a.m you guys enjoy your tuesday we'll be back here wednesday morning and remember always do not wait to buy real estate you buy real estate and wait and wait